This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression, and this podcast aims to share it all. From personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome back to the Mom and Mind podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kat. In our continued efforts to bring awareness to pregnancy and infant loss for the month of October, we are having on a special guest today, Devorah Enton, who has been working in perinatal loss and grief for quite some time. And this will be her second time on the Mom and Mind podcast. She is coming on to share a little bit more about the clinical side to perinatal grief and loss, some deeper understanding of this process, as well as some things to help people who are in the grieving process themselves. Devorah Enton is an LCSW PMHC, and she specializes in reproductive and perinatal mental health with advanced training by Postpartum Support International, ASRM, and the Miss Foundation in Compassionate Bereavement. She is a clinical consultant for several nonprofits and is a lead trainer for Postpartum Support International. As an adjunct professor at the Wurzweiler School of Social Work, she developed a maternal mental health curriculum for MSW students and teaches coping with loss. A recent graduate of Council for Relationship Sex Therapy postgraduate training, Devorah maintains a group private practice in Philadelphia and consults and presents nationally about mental health and supporting those in struggle. We're going to be touching on some very important topics. First of all, she is going to share with us the difference between perinatal loss and grief and other types of loss and grief, as well as different ways that perinatal loss and grief might show up, some of the more obvious ways, and also some of the more nuanced ways that it might show up. Our episode today does not go into specific details of people's experience of loss and grief. So while some of our other personal stories might be a little bit hard to hear, we are able to hear about loss and grief from the clinical perspective. So it helps some of the intensity that some of you might experience when listening to people's personal stories. While these topics are always difficult, it can be really helpful to hear from a therapeutic perspective what can be done and also that there is additional training available that Devorah has spent a lot of time along with Dr. Joanna Cole in developing a really 
comprehensive curriculum that covers grief and loss that anybody who is supporting a parent during the grief and loss period, not just therapists, can partake in. So let's not wait another minute. Let's hear from Devorah. Thank you so much, Devorah, for being here. I'm really happy to have everyone learn from your expertise. You're such a leader in this part of our field, and I'm glad that people will be able to hear from you. Always a pleasure. Always fun to talk to you. <laughs> it sure is. So yeah, we are going to talk about grief and loss and what it is and in the perinatal period. So let's just start there. What, what all kind of encompasses grief and loss and what might people be surprised to understand as part of the grief and loss process? It's a really important like perspective that there's parts of the grief and loss experience in the perinatal population that I think is very unique beyond the grief experience in the general world, right? So in the general population, you're going to have the loss of a loved one. Let's, we're talking primarily about death at this point versus the other experiences of loss, although we will touch on those things. But we, when we talk about death, we typically will have things like a burial. We will have experience life with this person that we are remembering. There are, there are memories associated with this person that we have to talk about, to mourn over. Perhaps there's a lot of ritual associated with it. And then we move over into what we'll just kind of categorize as perinatal grief or perinatal loss. And what's obvious in this space is, first of all, the disenfranchisement of this kind of grief, the idea of like, what are we grieving if we haven't actually seen or maybe even held this child, baby, fetus, embryo, whatever the languages that our people are using. So what am I actually grieving? Am I grieving the future, which really is what distinguishes this experience from memorializing and remembering the past when we've had time to interact with a person? Mm. I'm grieving the future, but I'm also experiencing this loss that is very much unrecognized by others. Mm. So maybe somebody didn't even know I was pregnant, and yet I'm grieving as if the whole world knew that I was pregnant. Right. We've, right. We're dealing with a lot of complexities, especially in this world today around social media, where there's a lot of disclosure that's happening very, very early. Right. So there's this sense of I'm grieving in a private sphere, in a public sphere. How do I engage with all those people that know that I'm now I was pregnant, even if I only was pregnant for a short period of time? So that's like the kind of overall category of perinatal grief, what makes it different mm -hmm. than the maybe general grief and death experience that people have when there's a loved one that is lost. But yeah. then underneath that category, I think we've really come to understand that there are so many different experiences within that realm that are, again, under-acknowledged and also confusing for people. Yes. Um Things like early loss. So it's a chemical pregnancy. Is that a loss? Is ectopic pregnancy a loss? Is a failed embryo tr transfer? That's a loss. What about these catastrophic experiences where there was a failure of a, some of the egg banks had some catastrophic failures of their, of their freezing systems and we lost thousands of embryos and gametes, right? That's a loss. Now, it's a loss that how do I honor or remember, right, because there's no other wording for that, or respect the loss of those 10 embryos on ice or my eggs that were on ice because I had cancer treatment, and there's no going backward, mm -hmm. right? So those are just some of these really fine, minute details of perinatal grief that we're looking to, to, to kind of deep dive into and understand more, more 
in a more comprehensive and kind of a wider look at what this loss experience is like. In addition to those kinds of losses that are kind of, I guess I would say more nuanced, even the conversation around fetal anomaly and when there's a termination for fetal anomaly or when there's a termination for any reason, or when we're carrying a pregnancy that we know this baby is going to die and we're choosing to bring that pregnancy to term or for as long as that child survives, those are losses that are also being experienced while there is life, mm-hmm. right? So there's life within me. And yet I, I, there's a heartbeat. I know this baby, I feel this baby moving, but I also know this baby is going to be dying very shortly because they are incompatible with life or, or taking a baby all the way to term. And then there's a death or a catastrophic outcome as a stillbirth. Those are the things that we're like, I mean, and there's, I'm, I know there are more as we'll continue to discuss this. There are so many nuances and facets to this experience that it's it's way bigger than, quote unquote, just miscarriage and stillbirth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that encompasses so much. And I know even in the in the overview there, there's there are other paths that this grief can take. What I hear so often is what you were saying before is I don't know if it was so early. Is it still like people don't understand why I'm still grieving or in any in any way, even people who have had multiple losses, unfortunately, sometimes for different reasons, the depth of grief that they're still carrying for however long their process is, I mean, in some ways forever, forever. And also they're like how much the trauma of all of it is still impacting them, like varies from person to person. But yeah, to your point, it's forever. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The grief, but they feel like additionally alone and when it's been some time, like even six months or a year or a couple of years after where other people just don't understand why they're still quote unquote sad or upset or, Oh, you have other kids now, or like all of this other stuff. Can you kind of speak to some of the, the ways in which other people are, who aren't experiencing the grief directly are, how can I say like either getting it wrong? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Can I be nice? (laughs) 
Yes. I was trying well, to think, be nice. <laughs> I know. I'm not that nice. I think this is one of the things that we as society struggle with very deeply is this idea of we're not comfortable with death. Mm. We're not comfortable with grief. Mm-hmm. It is one of those things that Joanne Cole, Joanna Cole, who works with me yes. in the in, in collaboration in our in our perinatal loss training through PSI. One of the things that I, I, I love repeating about what she says and how she trains her fellows at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, she'll say to them, so you need to be able to say death, dead and dying. And you have to say it without choking. You have to right. say it without whispering. And you have to be able to say it confidently because you can't say your child has passed away. Well, where did they go? So you're saying mm-hmm. the child has died. The baby has died. And I think that some of us might be like, oh, that's so harsh. Or like, oh, that I, like, I'm not comfortable with that. And mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that that's where we begin to check ourselves and say, wait a minute, why can I feel so, why am I so uncomfortable with saying these words around death and grief and bereavement? So we're not comfortable as a society. Mm -hmm. And so when we're not comfortable with something, what ends up happening is either we avoid it completely, or I notice that people just try very, very hard to make, say something that's going to make you feel better Mm -hmm. without the understanding that there is nothing you can say, actually zero, that you can say that is going to make a person feel better when they're in the depths of their grief. Absolutely. I think the sometimes I feel like the only people who can speak to it are people who have gone through an identical scenario. Mm-hmm. But even then, what I bring into the room is going to be different than what you bring into the room when we're talking about these kinds of losses. So as a as a kind of a like a way of thinking about this is the less I say the better, mm-hmm. but also that acknowledging that the grief is here to stay. And this mm-hmm. is something that I would like people who are the observers of the grief who have not yet become bereaved because we all will if we live long enough. Mm -hmm. And those that are grieving to understand that there isn't a moment where you get over it or Mm -hmm. where it's in the past or where it's gone. And Mm -hmm. the faster we come to understand that as a society and then individually, even though it's so painful and so uncomfortable, none of us like pain. We want to grab that Tylenol Advil. We're like pain meds right now, right? And we walk out of the dentist's office with a tablet of Percocet for a toothache. And we're kind of very quick to medicate our pain. Mm -hmm. And yet when it comes to grief, the discomfort of that pain, unfortunately, is not anything that we should be medicating away, but also is not something that we're actually going to be able to get rid of. And part of that process for the person is to live with that experience and learn how to hold the intensity of that grief as it shifts and changes over time. Mm -hmm. But that when we begin to understand that it's here to stay, we begin to honor it. And that's when the people who really get it are the ones who will move in a little bit closer to the griever, because those are the people that will not try to make it better. And who year after year will acknowledge, well, of course, you're still sad. And of course, mm-hmm. you're still grieving because you lost something very important to you and very mm-hmm. precious to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to your point there, like if, if I'm thinking of a couple of people in particular, who get are, are rightly so very upset that nobody remembers the date of their the loss of their child, like it could even be a family member who doesn't remember it. So the, it, it, it can be additionally painful. I mean, can you, I guess what I want to say is, can you talk a little bit about like what the grieving person is dealing with, with they, when they come up upon certain dates that are important to them or uh, per, even periods of time, like I'll hear, okay, well in the fall, this is when it, it's like this whole period of time. I just have a hard time with. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah. Absolutely. I have a client that always, I know that as the summer's approaching, things are starting to decline for her, mm-hmm. uh, that she really begins, that she knows that the summer's approaching. That was when her water broke. That was when mm-hmm. she, the pregnancy was basically failing and mm-hmm. there was still a heartbeat, but there was no water left. There was no mm-hmm. amniotic fluid left. And mm-hmm. she knew that this was, there was no way to save this pregnancy. And she was mid second trimester. There was nothing to be done. Mm-hmm. And as the months progressed, she, I see it and we watch it, but we talk about it and we grieve it. And, and then at, it actually, there was some relief in the aftermath of the date of delivery of the mm-hmm. date of birth, mm-hmm. because then she's like, this is where I am today is in the aftermath of this experience. Anniversaries of finding out I'm pregnant, anniversaries of intended delivery date, like this was my oh, due yeah. date, Intent, the date where the pregnancy actually did end in whatever way it was. Those can be real triggers for pain, real moments of sadness. And I think that, like you said, there's so there's so much difficulty in, let's just talk with family at first, that mm-hmm. I, I just want them to be okay. So I, I don't, I don't understand why they're feeling so sad, because like it happened three years ago, or two years ago. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's this misunderstanding of if I say something that I'm triggering their pain, which actually, we know it to be the complete opposite, that when right. you acknowledge Mm-hmm. I remember that mm-hmm. it says I, it meant something like it meant, I know right. it meant something to her. And then it also meant something to me mm-hmm. in as the observer. So I think the, those are the kinds of trigger moments, primarily, even things like holidays and birthday anniversaries of mm-hmm. other family members, children, like I would as, as an older child, it's, it's very interesting, some of the nuance here. So let's say the youngest, they have a loss, and then the youngest living child turns three. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, I would have had another baby by For now. Sure. Yes. But now I have this big space between my children. And I didn't really, I wanted them to be friends, I wanted them to be close in age, and I'm losing this time between my two youngest children. And I, I can't seem to, and there's no way to make up that time. So right. those are just some of the like, kind of subtleties of time passing that can be very complicated. Right. And I, I guess this is in part some way why and how this can last forever is because there are pretty frequent reminders. Sure. It's not like it's, it's, it happened and, and, and it's not there anymore. Like you're, you're not grieving anymore. Rather the, there, there's an anticipation of dates. There's like moving through that time. One of the things that I have seen with people who, with some folks is it feels like if they acknowledge their grief or if they allow themselves to feel it, that they will just fall apart, not yeah. just for a moment, but like forever. It, right. it feels like it will be too much and it's hard to fathom what it would be or look like to feel some of this pain because it's just that big. Yeah. How, how do you approach <laughs> that kind of right? I love when somebody says to me, well, I might fall apart. Like, what if I unravel? And I'll say, well, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. Describe it. I'm going to be on the floor screaming Mm -hmm. and crying. I say, okay, and then what would happen next? Mm -hmm. And then what would happen next? And then eventually they realize that like, maybe they would stop crying eventually. Maybe they would be hungry or need to go to the bathroom and they would get up off the floor and do those things. And what would happen if you unraveled, right? We're not talking about a psychotic break. Right. Right. It's unlikely that we're looking at somebody who loses touch with reality. This is actually very much in touch with reality. It's Mm -hmm. that it's that capacity to go to that most darkest place of grief in in an authentic way and potentially with the support of a therapist to do that, to realize that it's that the that this feeling of I can't cope with it or tolerate it or handle it when someone is well supported 
they learn that they can. They don't necessarily mm. want to, but oh, they right. learn that they can do it when they're when they're well supported. I think that's one of the the broader, again, societal, sociological challenges that we have is that many people feel incredibly isolated and alone. They don't feel well supported and they don't feel like they have that person who can tolerate the unravelingness of it. And that's the challenge that we are pushing against that that I don't have a good answer for. For sure. So, right. There's the, 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 intense grief but then also the loneliness and and like that that seems to be well i guess i have a sort of a biased population (laughs) of people who are in part coming in for therapy because they don't feel like they have support and they do feel alone in their grief that nobody understands it it just it's just another layer that makes this so much more difficult very much especially if there is a partner if there is a partner and they can grieve the part in, within the partnership together. And if they grieve kind of in collaboration, they feel supported when the partner is on a very different page and mm-hmm. also maybe is not comfortable with how the partner is grieving. Mm-hmm. That, in, that is where we begin to see a lot of challenges. Yeah, right. And that can, can be hard because if, if somebody is not only in grief, but let's oftentimes in, in experiencing a trauma of some sort in, Mm -hmm. in their experience, sometimes the partner like might not be grieving the same as you said, because they, they have to be the, the one who's like continuing to take the other kids somewhere or like, and can't really join in or feel their feelings necessarily. Yeah. The studies really, it's very interesting. The studies show that there definitely is that this can be a shared intense grief at first. And then very often, if we're talking about a, a, a generally a heterosexual couple coupling, that's what the data is. The data pretty much focuses on heterosexual couples that we've seen and that's available to us that it's basically like the birthing person, the woman is the one who grieves for a more intense, longer period of time. Mm. And that they're the that person's husband or partner may actually grieve very differently. And it almost like kind of changes within a few weeks of time, there's a drop off or a shifting in the grief experience for the spouse. And it doesn't mean that they don't feel the sadness of the loss. It doesn't mean that they didn't experience the loss itself, but they definitely experience the grief process differently. The thing that you keep, you bring up this word trauma. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting to me is it's not every pregnancy loss or associated loss is actually traumatic. Mm -hmm. It could be a sad, horrible thing that happens doesn't necessarily mean that there's a trauma. When there is a trauma, you are actually absolutely on point with that idea of we're dealing with not only the grief and the loss and the bereavement that's going to come along with it, but then we also have this traumatic impact on either the self, the partner, the family, Mm. the society, the community, whoever knows about this horrible thing that happened. Mm -hmm. And so the traumatic component of it is, is, can be very much unique to the grief. So you can be, the grieving will stay around. The trauma doesn't necessarily have to stick forever. It can become like kind of, you can separate those two things potentially out, but acknowledging that both experiences are possible when we're dealing with perinatal losses and, and anything that goes under that category. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking in particular to the therapists who are listening, who are interested in learning more about grief and loss. This is, a, this is an important component to pay attention to and to, to kind of assess for and see if trauma is also present because that, so. that like Very changes much. how grief is experienced. 
It does. And I think that I think one of the things that I also will hear from clients is something like, is there something wrong with me that I'm quote unquote, okay. Mm. So I've had seven week loss, a 12 week loss, like Mm -hmm. I'm sad, I I had to go to the doctor, this happened, they give me the details. And then they're like, is it okay if I'm like, not like horrifically mortified or sad or devastated by like what happened? And and so we're always going to be looking for the deferred grief experience. We're like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Well, mm-hmm. put the, putting that aside for now, I'll have people who said, I, yeah, I had a miscarriage between baby one and baby two. And I mean, it was sad, but I feel okay with that history now. It's not something that comes up with me right. to me all the time. Right. And is that acceptable? And is there something wrong with me that I'm not devastated? So we mm-hmm. want to hear all of the narratives that people experience, yes. but we should be screening for some PTSD when, especially if that's the reason they're coming to therapy, mm. are we, we need to ask them about their sleep. We need to ask them about the flashbacks or the, or the, the dreams that they're having or the things that are keeping them up at night. And those are the things that I'm listening for. I'm listening for the numbing that also can come along where they're just completely not engaged in their feelings mm. uh, and, and, and listening to both, both narratives, just the grief and also the trauma. Right. So, I mean, that, that's it. Uh, that, that question, like, is it okay that I'm, I'm not feeling a certain way is, is really interesting because it, it, it almost makes me think that people who are experiencing grief are walking on a tightrope of sorts. Mm-hmm. There's the, like the societal expectations that on one side, you should be terribly upset. And on the other side that you shouldn't be like, you should be fine. Now it's been a, so many weeks or so many right. months. Right. That's that's incredibly difficult to walk through when you as a person who are grieving don't don't really have a sense or or you've been told that however it is you're feeling is wrong in some right. way. And right. then now you're dealing with that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I think we've made some progress potentially in the books that have been written on the social media presence of like changing that conversation around grief, but sometimes people are just not exposed to it. And the culture or community in which they come from also might not either validate that kind of grief or honor that kind of loss. And that's an important component to it. So if culture says do not cry or the soul will not rest, right, which Mm -hmm. some cultures will say that, Mm -hmm. um, then there's like this mandate that I can't express my feelings in that way. And that can be very, very difficult to navigate. And especially as a therapist, where I want them to experience their feelings, but if culturally they need something different, I have to be able to be comfortable working within that culture. Oh, yeah. I feel like that would could be a whole separate episode of just the, the <laughs> cultural implications. And, and there are so many different. There are. Even within like sort of major cultural societies, there are cultures within cultures. Very much. So, wow. Yeah, there's a there's quite a lot in there. It's it's a lot to navigate when you're also potentially feeling really out of sorts. Absolutely. So for the parents who are listening, who are at whatever stage of, of their processing grief that they're at, what are, what are some things that you often like wish that parents either would know or could feel or experience about this grief process? So first of all, you, you start off with that word parent. And I think that that is a label and a name and an identity that I would encourage somebody to own, even if their entire parenting identity has been one day says a lost parent. Mm-hmm. And even if it's only a six week loss, and even if it's only a 10 week loss, and even if, even if, even if, even if mm-hmm. you're still a parent mm-hmm. and to honor and respect what that means for you. And you may be a bereaved parent, but you are a parent. 
And so that's the first thing that to begin to kind of transition over into this identity of, yes, I have the right to this grief. That's really the essence here. The essence is that I have permission to grieve this experience and nobody else can tell you otherwise. Mm -hmm. And maybe culturally, it might be difficult for you to express it in a more public way or there aren't rituals that are associated but internally and in, in, as you address your own mood and feelings and emotions, honor that experience as a parent. Mm-hmm. So that for me is mm-hmm. number one. That yeah. second component, that idea of permission to grieve, that your grief narrative is going to be specific and unique to you. You can't follow someone else's pathway. You can look at other people and wonder or read about or be curious about how they did it, mm-hmm. but recognizing that there isn't an ex- an explicit right way or wrong way to grieve. That's one of the most common questions I have is, am I doing this right? Mm -hmm. And I think the one thing that I will feel that I feel is that very strongly about is as long as you're doing it. Now, doing it will look different for every person. For some Mm -hmm. person doing it is I cry every day. For some people, it's for some, some individuals there, the doing it piece of it is I go into my closet at nine o'clock at night, curl up under my clothing and I cry at nine o'clock at night. For some people doing it is journaling. Mm. All of these ideas are very, very valuable components of being present with the grief. Doing it might mean I spend time with my spouse at eight o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night. We meet up on the couch. We spend five minutes remembering. And then we talk about like what's what's on the agenda for the month. But every night at five o'clock, five minutes a night, I know that I get to be fully present with the grief that I feel. Sometimes I can be very help helps other people manage it because otherwise it feels very, very chaotic and the whole day and I can't and I have to go to work and I have to take care of my family. So capturing some of that time, but doing it is right. what's needed. And then it's just like having like not it could be scheduling, but in but necess- rather let me restate that. It could be scheduling, but it's being intentional. Very much. Like having it's mindful. Mindful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. mindful grieving. Not every, and, and again, I don't think that we start off with that mindful grieving. Usually mm. grief is just explosive and like a really messy experience. But yeah. as time passes, you might kind of think, think, trying to figure out like, what do I do now? How do I do this? I don't want to forget. And that's another thing that I might say to parents is you will never forget. Mm-hmm. You won't. nobody forgets these experiences. You might forget the name of the doctor. You might forget what day was it exactly, depending on what that experience was like for you. But you never forget that there was a miscarriage that took Mm -hmm. place between child number two and three. I think those are some of the highlighted, the highlights that I think about in talking to parents. And then I guess to to the the one of the more important things I think above all of that is get support. Mm -hmm. You don't and shouldn't do it alone. If you have a partner that's supportive, great. If that's enough for you, great. But if you need more, ask for more. There are support groups for PSI. There's support groups that exist across the country. Reach out to a support group, find your your posse, find your people who you can Mm -hmm. kind of unravel a bit in front of them, let your hair down a bit, and be honest about what it is they're experiencing, and that there is no timeline to this. There's no like, okay, I'm done now, I'm Mm -hmm. finished. (laughs) Even when you have another child, that child does not fill the empty space of the baby that died. That child fills a place in your heart. Yes, that's why your heart expands to make room for this new baby. But that baby does, and there might be comfort in being able to nourish and nurture a a new baby. But that does not mean that the previous baby is forgotten. 
And that can be a hard transition for parents to make sometimes. Yeah. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Yeah, I totally hear that. It's Oof. It, it is really a challenge to feel like you're you could be replacing or you should be or that that in some way some part will will be lost and and i think too i wonder if because of that fear sometimes people do hold on to it in a different way hold on to the grief Agreed. as a as a way to not forget correct very much and i think that that's something that we work through in therapy you don't have to release the grief per se, but you might relief, relieve or change or shift or kind of move within that experience mm-hmm. that makes it more livable. But I think our greatest fear is forgetting and then also potentially betraying the experience of that first birth or that other baby. So like if I'm happy and excited about the new baby, does that mean that I've now betrayed the memory of the other baby? And learning how to kind of synthesize the two experiences as unique and distinct within my family story. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really powerful. Okay, so there are more and more therapists who are learning about how to support parents through this process, but still that we need more. It It is still pretty clear that the therapists who treat grief, that's great, but that this is a really unique and specific type of grief like you started off with. And so it requires specialized training. And I know you've put a ton of time into creating this grief course for therapists. So can you talk a little bit about what the, what's in there, what the course is? Sure. Sure. And I think that one of the things that I think makes this, this training kind of unique is that it's not exclusively for therapists. Mm -hmm. So we acknowledge that people who are put aside that word treat Uh and just talk about support. That yeah. people who support people through grief are also going to be people like 
ultrasound technicians and mm-hmm. physicians and neonatologists who are going to have to do death conversations and OBGYNs who will have to do death notifications. And what about the partners who also are experiencing these kinds of losses? So looking at not only the, the, the primary person who is experiencing that loss, but then all of the people who are interacting with that person mm-hmm. and figuring out navigating ways to support them as well as a whatever area of expertise in which I work. So lactation our, or... yeah, lactation, mm-hmm. exactly. Doulas. Some, some doulas will go through something more extensive called like a death doula training, but mm-hmm. most are not. But there is a possibility that a doula will be present at a lost birth and mm-hmm. learning how to do that well and effectively makes you an extraordinary person. So the PSI training on grief and loss is one that I worked very closely in collaboration with Joanna Cole on. I, I kind of sometimes talk about my magnum opus because I'm <laughs> so deeply proud of the work that that is present in that in that training. We started out as a one day training and immediately understood that we have to make it two days. It's experiential. It's a lot of case related work. It's very interactive. We're keeping our attendance small so that we can create a much more robust dynamic. It's in person for that same reason. Mm-hmm. And everything that we talked about today is in there plus much more. Wow. And I think that when it comes to therapy and training, somebody said to me, well, what modality are you using? I'm like, hmm, what modality are we? It's not a, because I think that when you come to this work from a different angle, and it's one that both Joanna and I feel very strongly about is the angle of actually depathologizing the grief, moving yes. back and pulling back from this disordered behavior, disordered di- the diagnosis. And there's a lot of conflict in conversation. We just got a new diagnosis, prolonged grief disorder, which we un- I unfortunately do tend to mock pretty publicly because if you read it, you're just kind of going, wait, really? Like, now I understand mm-hmm. I'm going to need that if I need a bill insurance, but putting insurance aside, the grief process is a normative experience of living. If I have mm-hmm. lived, I will grieve. Mm-hmm. If I've lived long enough, I will grieve many. Mm-hmm. And so learning the language and the experience of depathologizing that grief process of understanding what it means to support people who are in it and also observed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we how do we make it better? And because we're going to be doing it, how do we do it better? Mm-hmm. That's the goal of the training. A lot. The other piece I think that comes along with perinatal grief training is a, a deeper familiarity with the medical language. And while we are not physicians, we are absolutely going to be immersed in a, some some of the medical components of that. And learning right. some of that language is necessary for you to be not only a competent but an outstanding therapist. So if we move toward, I, I think so, very often we have that, that ability to just like checkbox all the things that we do. You need to, when you get trained in this, you will understand what you didn't know that you didn't know. Right. And I think right. that's like, the, I think that's modality, everything, all the modalities included, all modalities valuable. But first we need to start with this premise of we are not treating, we are supporting, mm-hmm. we are holding, we are accompanying, mm-hmm. we are we are collaborating with others so that they are not alone in that grief. They will do this, they will grieve and we will watch it happen naturally. But when well supported and when we have the language and we have the capacity to sit in that space with someone who's doing it, the whole environment changes. And that's when we see the beauty of the work that we do. When we know that we're doing it right is when I'm not actually intervening all that much, but I'm comfortable enough to lean into that space with that person. Absolutely. That's what they need. Yeah, That's what they need more than anything. More than yeah. anything. Yes, definitely. Well, I know that there is so much more to know about 
grief and loss in the perinatal period and also the course. And I'm, I'm so, if I can say proud of the work that you and Joanna have done, I, I know a little bit of how much went into this and how, how passionate and compassionate you are in your work. And I I just think there's, there's nobody better than, than you and Joanna to have created this and be the facilitators of this training. It's, I know yeah. it's powerful. I saw people walk out of the training during the PSI <laughs> conference and I was like, oh, yep, that's yep. that's mm-hmm. deep. That's deep and heavy stuff. And it needs to happen. So yes, I'm very so much. grateful. The, and, and I think that like, I think that the feedback that we got from the two that we've done already has been really helps us understand that not only is this valuable and necessary, but we're on point with mm-hmm. what people need. It's a mm-hmm. mix between the data driven and it's all data driven and yet it's also incredibly hands-on, practical, compassionate, and and hopefully that we walk out better people, whether we ever engage in perinatal death in particular mm-hmm. with somebody, with our clients, but I'm telling you, it supports you in your own grief process and understanding what this lived experience is like. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for your work <laughs> and for, for being Thank here you. to share it with us. It's a privilege. As you can see, there's so much still to know and understand about perinatal loss and grief, but this conversation with Tavora has highlighted some really important parts of both the process of grief and also additional ways that we can, as professionals, get training to support those who are experiencing perinatal loss and grief. To get connected with Devora, go to devoraenton.com. And also, if you are interested in going to this perinatal loss and grief training, they are smaller group trainings, and that's done on purpose to make sure that there can be more discussion and focused attention. So you can go to postpartum.net slash professionals slash certificate trainings and find out more about when the next training is available. And I want to reiterate that this is not just for therapists. This is for all professionals that are hoping to support folks who've experienced a loss. I thank you guys so much for being with us. Until next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us at momandmind.com. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.